Well, y'all seem to do pretty good with that. Hey, man, I'm proud. First time through. Wow. Does that mean uh, all of them should get in the choir now? Uh, <laughs> okay. I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to be talking about wisdom. Wisdom for the wise. Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. I'm just going to be reading the first uh, four or five verses and then uh, our first three verses and then we'll pick up the rest of them in the sermon. But it says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God, and here's the key, the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just ask for your guidance and your direction guard the words that I say help me to speak the uh, the message share the message that you have and that you've laid upon my heart and from your word and I just pray that our eyes might be open to your truth that we might see and hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us uh, from not just the message but as uh, we've read your word and will continue to read your word and try to uh, to look at ex explanation that that you will just reveal to us the truth. And, and Lord, help us to uh, heed the truth and leave this place uh, stronger, wiser, uh, ready to, uh, to face a world that is full of um, uh, difficulty and trials and, and uh, there's all kinds of temptations. And I pray that we will uh, face them in a, uh, a way that will be led by your wisdom so that we can make the right choices and, and do the right things that will bring honor and glory to your name. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we live in a world where we don't have all the answers? I know we'd like to have all the answers. And some people tell you they have all the answers. But how in the world can we live in a world like that? Because we're people that want to know and be in control for the most part. Thomas Boston, a Scottish theologian, produ has produced some wonderful writings. And he was a man that was a man that would be classified as melancholy. He had that melancholy type spirit. Prone to seasons of discouragement in his Christian life. He was often poor in spirit, I mean in health, even though he never missed a turn when it came about in the pulpit. And his wife suffered from chronic illness of the body and perhaps the mind also. But perhaps the greatest trial the couple experienced was the death of their children. They lost six of their children. Ten babies, 
One was extremely tragic. Boston had already lost a son named Ebenezer, which means hitherto has the Lord helped from 1 Samuel 7, 12. And after the death of their son, the wife gave birth to another child, another son. And he considered naming the new child Ebenezer also as well. Yet he hesitated because he reasoned it would be a testimony of hope in the faithfulness of God. But then he questioned, but what if this child died also? That would be a loss too bitter to bear. By faith, though, Boston and his wife decided to name the boy Ebenezer. Unfortunately, the child was sickly and never recovered. What would you do? How would you react? What questions would you have? How would you face the situation? After suffering such heavy loss, I want to share with you many people would be tempted to accuse God and have accused God of doing wrong. This should never have happened. You're unjust. Now I want to tell you, not only unbelievers do this, believers question it. Some abandon their faith. They just cannot stand it. Now you think about losing all these children to death. And then some, being a minister, would think about dropping out of the ministry for at least a while, needing to recover from it. But we see that, that uh, Thomas, he wouldn't settle for any of them. It wasn't that he didn't struggle. It was that he was determined in his heart to trust God who had all the answers. In Ecclesiastes, if you'll look in verse 14, going back to verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Trusting in a sovereign God, in the goodness of God, helps us know how to respond to all the joys and also the trials of life. Whether we do or not, it helps us to. To understand how to do this, the preacher talks about having the wisdom of God. We need that wisdom. We're told that wisdom is among the greatest virtues a person could seek for their life. James tells us that God is more than willing to give us wisdom. If we would just ask by faith. But perhaps you, like me, sometimes find it hard to believe that our circumstances are in the hands of God. Now let's just be honest. Don't we find that out at times? The way we face trials. 
I mean, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16, that the whole, here the whole nation is speaking, and he says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Have you ever felt that way before? I have. I know you probably have too. You cried out and you cried out and you cried out and you say, God, where are you? Why shouldn't these Israelites feel that way? There was a threat all around them. There was the impending signs of judgment and and destruction. And it, it was clear that bondage was near. And so things seemed to be deteriorating for them. Have things seemed to be deteriorating for you at times? Maybe you've prayed for healing and healing hasn't come. Maybe you prayed for your spouse or you know someone that's prayed for their spouse and you prayed with them that they might return, but they haven't returned. Maybe you prayed with somebody about an abusive husband. You know a situation like that. For that abusion to, uh, abusiveness to stop, but things have only gotten worse. <coughs> Maybe your prayers have been for a rebellious child. For that child to come to their senses. But things for them have only gotten worse. Maybe it's a job situation. For it to get better. But you haven't seen it change. You haven't seen it turn. The question that has come to these people's minds. And the minds of all of us. And and to especially people that are experiencing things like this. And other things is. Where is God in all of this? Where are you, God? Is he listening? Does he care? With Israel, it was Jehovah, you have forsaken and forgotten us. After they said this, Isaiah asked a very penetrating question. He said, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of the womb? Wow. That got their attention, I'm sure. And he's asking, is it possible for a mother to forget a child after birth and walk away? Well, we know the answer. The answer today is certainly, we see it more and more, unfortunately. We know that that happens. Even though with most caring mothers, we dare say that would happen. But with some, we know that it will. Why? Because mothers, just like fathers, are in their flesh. They still have their own nature. And we see that it happens with both. God says, you want to think that they won't, but it might happen. He put that question mark in their mind. And he says, That's not the case with me, though. This is what he's trying to get across. I will never abandon you. Isn't that great? I will never leave you. God is more faithful than a a mother to her child. Even the faithful ones. 
God is more faithful than a football coach to his team. Nick Saban, he might tell his team that he would never leave, but there's a possibility that he could leave. Smart, the coach here. The coach at Clemson, Dabo, any of them. They may tell their team that, but they could leave. And so in turn, even a father, a devoted father to his family might tell them that that, uh, he would never leave, but he might leave. But God is more faithful than all these. Even though right now they're devoted to their different areas of life. Why does God say that? Because he is God. Isaiah shares that God has inscribed us, and I like this, on the palms of his hands that your walls are continually before me. Now what is he talking about there? Isaiah is telling us that God sees what is behind every wall in our life. He sees everything about us. Every wart, every scar, every need, everything of our life he sees. And he keeps us, it says, in the palm of his hands. He knows us. He knows our actions. He knows everything about us continually, not just in the past, Not just in the present, continually it says. This includes our responses, our experiences, our reactions. He knows your dead ends. He knows your calamities. He knows your impossibilities. He has yesterday's failures, today's challenges, and tomorrow's surprises all in his hands. That's the kind of God that we serve. He is immutable and unshockable. That's another thing. He does not gasp with uh, anything that happens behind the walls. He knows all. God has a whole world in his hand. You know the song? To realize this should help us tremendously. And to have God's wisdom concerning life helps us handle situations more confidently because it's a wisdom from God not only does he have us in his hands but he gives us wisdom to face each and every situation that he knows that's going to come about by his grace so the vertical wisdom equips us to see and handle life under the care of God how He would have us to. As someone has said, wisdom from above means having the God-given ability to see life objectively and to handle life with stability. When God's wisdom is at work, objectivity, stability, insight, discernment, and right judgments will become our results or the results in our life. God's wisdom, though it's different than mere human wisdom, is far superior and is reserved for God's own people. It's just like this morning when we were talking about 
you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Who is Jesus primarily speaking to? He's speaking to believers, isn't he? And how kingdom people should live. Well, here we see that wisdom is for God's people. It's reserved for his people. Human wisdom, it may impress people, but it often falls flat under pressure, doesn't it? God's wisdom, though, is different. It can't be learned from books. It only comes from walking with God. God's wisdom is practical. It is not academic or theoretical. It displays itself in tangible ways throughout our life and experiences. When we put into action this wisdom, then we begin to see God work and results happen for his kingdom. Now, we see three benefits that come from putting this kind of wisdom into action. First of all, we'll become balanced. Look in verses 15 through 18 once again. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. How often have we seen that and we've said, why in the world doesn't God judge them? Why do the good, why are they taken early and the bad get to hang around and just continue to do bad? Do not be over-righteous, though, he said, neither be uh, over-wise. Because why? Because it destroys you. Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why? Because you will die before your time. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. In other words, we need to be balanced. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Being balanced, it helps us to be balanced. The preacher's not bragging here when he says, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. He says, you know, I've seen it all, in other words. But he's not, he's not bragging about that. He's just stating facts. We say the same thing at times when uh, something happens and it's, Surprising to us, we say something like, well, I've seen it all. You've said that before. You've seen something. You said, well, I've seen it all now. That is what the preacher is saying here. Having seen it all, the king now realizes the value of wisdom. He sees the need for balance when looking at life. Solomon, Solomon began by talking about extreme behaviors. First, he is not promoting things in moderation. I want to say that a lot of people have taken these verses and used them incorrectly and said, well, you know, uh, you know he's, he's promoting um, moderation in everything. To live, you can live and you can do all these wicked things just in moderation. Christians will look at it that way to justify their lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, you can, you can be uh, uh, smart and, and you can be, you know, wise in a lot of this. Just don't be over, overly wise. Well, uh, this is not what he's trying to get across. He says that neither is good. The traits in verse 16 
are good and desirable, but taken to extreme, they become bad. What happens? He says, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise, who destroy yourself. He says, being excessively righteous or overly wise leads to ruin of your life. Now, what does he mean? Well, he's just describing, like we talked about this morning, a self-righteous person. They regard themselves as righteous because they do not do certain things. It can result in a sanctimonious, uh, pseudo-religious type of uh, lifestyle of showmanship, especially in the art of service or worship. It shows up in a spirit of hypercriticism against minor deviations from one's own cultural norm which uh, they equate with God's uh, righteousness. It it appears as disguising conceit, the uh, holier-than-thou type of mentality, veneered over the the whole lifestyle that you're living. The do-not-be-over-wise is in reflective mood, and and it's understood as it's used in Proverbs 3-7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Reflective in your own eyes. It could be read, do not multiply your righteousness and do not play the part of the wise in your own eyes. Why? Because it'll destroy you. So it speaks of self-righteousness. Self-righteous people regard themselves as righteous because they do not do A lot of times because they do not do certain things. We've talked about that. They judge others. They have their scale. And they want to look good on it. This is probably one of the major curses in the church today. When a believer becomes so bent on being holy and informed that he forgets the grace of the all-knowing God. And he acts in a, a Phariseeistic way. The preacher tells us that not only the... The self-righteous is wicked, but the opposite extreme is wicked also. He says, do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool because you'll die before your time. The fool is uh, casting off of moral restraints like people do today and the abandonment of self-discipline and and going for the wild, unrestrained living is also wicked, he says. Each of these lifestyles is mutually self-destructive. They will destroy you, he says. People see this in, in their own wisdom, in, in acting it out in the under-the-sun type of wisdom. They, uh, you know, we see people abandoning uh, all things, their job, their families, throwing everything away, their careers, turning their backs on their friends, all because of what they think is right. He says the proper attitude is, is, uh, is, as we'll look in verse 18, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. So don't be wicked and foolish and blow life, he says. Be holy and wise. And in verse 16, to remember that you are a finite sinner who can't control God. Usually a Phariseeistic person is one who not only 
talks about the negatives and put himself on a scale or herself on a scale where they look good, but they want to be in control of things. They want to be in charge of things. And so uh, we can't control God or understand what he's up to a lot of times. We've got to admit that. Just obey him in what we know to obey. Trust him in what we know to do. Be balanced, he says. Whoever fears God will avoid, avoid all stream, extremes. Fearing God means not only to respect God, but to acknowledge his presence in all of your life. To acknowledge him not merely at the end of your life, like a lot of people do, but now. To fear God is to know that he sees all that you do. And that it is in his hand. And that, that he is in charge of all things. He is sovereign. And so the knowledge of God's power, wisdom, and love, his willingness to accept you, to change you, to forgive you, to restore you, and to stand by you, are all part of fearing God. To fear God is to know how to live in the midst of the world and yet not be self-righteous, smug, and complacent, or to, to live a wild life. That is true wisdom. That's balance. But then he says it will also strengthen you. Look in verses 19 through 22. Wisdom makes one wise. Makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. That sounds like Paul in Romans doesn't it? For there's none righteous, no, not one. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. And we talked about that this morning. We talked about, hey, you know, playing that game and being self-righteous, we've, we've all talked about judging others and saying things and being a part of that. So we're told that wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. There's no greater activity than walking with God and receiving him and his guidance for your life. But we need to watch out that we don't let our good behavior go to our head. Because once we start walking with God, we can become proud, can't we? We can say, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And, and uh, then we're just missing out on all of it and pretty soon if we're not careful we become that perfectionist you've heard of those perfectionists are those who want everything to fit into uh, the exact four corners of that box things have to be a certain way or the highway one person said a perfectionist one who takes great pains and gives them to others the preacher tells us to stop trying to be so self-righteous and perfect. There is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Now he's not saying we'll just sin. He's not uh, you know, giving you a, a green light for sinning. That's not what he's saying. He's just telling you don't be judgmental. Because you're a sinner saved by grace too. 
The more we glean from God's wisdom, the more we depend upon God's strength. And we realize that we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers. We realize that life is full of questions that cause tension, and we don't have a lot of those answers. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek God's Word and try to find the principles that are there to teach us. But as far as a black and white yes and no, a lot of times you won't find that. God's wisdom helps us to understand that God doesn't issue rules and regulations. He does provide some overall guidelines and principles that allow us to make the decisions that we make. And this is for a reason, because by doing so, the wisdom of God can go to work in our life and help us begin to walk the walk that God would have us to walk. His wisdom provides us like with a sixth sense to, uh, that we need to avoid life's uh, minds uh, as we journey through this life field that we're in. And it helps us uh, mature and, and press on in, spe in spite of unanswered uh, questions. You know, I, as far as a self-righteous person, I guess that I'm, I would appear not that wise to them. They have all the answers, and I don't. I'm sorry. And this goes with a lot of young and old. We need to heed this today. There's a lot of people in a lot of circles that think that they have all the answers today. You see this. You see some of it that's divided churches and, and caused churches to split. But you know, the more I study and the more I spend time walking with God, it seems like the more I learn the things I don't know. With that knowledge comes wisdom that tells me I don't have all the answers. After going to seminary, taking Greek and Hebrew like all the students do and all the other Bible classes, I got out and just like most of the students, I thought I would share with all the churches that I served in, give them all the answers that they needed. But I found out that I didn't have all the answers. As I've grown in the Lord, I've found out that I don't have a lot of answers. So, first, wisdom gives us that inner strength by helping us accept reality. That reality of pain, that tension there in life where we, sometimes we just don't have answers. When somebody dies and you just don't know what to say and why that person was taken early, a child or whatever, like with bacon. You know, um, or Thomas, you say, well, hey, what do you say there? You're there with wisdom to put your arm around them and tell them that, you know, you love them and that you're going to pray for them and that you're going to be there to help them in whatever way you can and that God is certainly there to help them and that you may not realize that at this time. But just let them know that you don't have all the answers. But you'll cry with them. And experience the pain with them. The tension in life. It gives us the ability to understand and accept those tensions. Which we face daily. It says indeed. 
There is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Wisdom helps us with those tensions of unanswered questions. We don't have to fill in all the blanks or sweep every theological corner clean, like some people think. This is something that both the older and younger generations need to heed to. And then second of all, it gives us strength to restrain ourselves from gullibility. Even though we don't have all the answers, we don't need to believe everything that everybody says. We should not believe, you know, you know somebody just because it's shared with us. We should go to the Word of God and seek it out. God does have the answers. We may not understand everything, but the principle is there. It may not be in black and white, well, you should marry this person or you should not marry this person. But the principle is there, right? And God teaches us that. Wisdom helps us to filter out what is false from what is true. Do not pay attention to every word, he says, people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Wisdom has a filtering system. It keeps us in touch with reality. It helps us avoid the pitfalls of gullibility. Flattery, people like to hear. We all like to hear it. Some people say, well, flattery will get you everywhere. Not so with a wise person. He or she understands it for what it truly is. You thank God for real praise and understand that it's only because of God's grace that you are able to know and do what you do. It's only because of God's grace. And we don't get the big head. Neither should we believe every word of criticism. He says, you know, there'll be those that talk about you. And you'll talk about them, he says. Some people think that they have the gift of criticism like we talked about this morning. But that's not a gift. You can tell, you know, they can tell you the wrong with your life each week. They know better than God. Someone once told someone else when they were telling them what they should do. And don't take this the wrong way. It's not blasphemy if you understand what he's saying. But when they were telling him what to do, he said, When did, who died and made you God? In other words, God hasn't died. He will never die. But you're acting as the Holy Spirit. You're acting as God. And so we need God is, is alive and he will give us wisdom. He will give us direction. Now does that mean that we shouldn't take, we shouldn't listen to criticism, uh, constructive criticism? We shouldn't listen to someone else? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means take it with the wisdom of God. But not everybody has all the answers, he's saying. Third, wisdom gives us ability to resist criticism or handle it well. Some criticism is valid, and we should hear it. But some is destructive and negative, and that's all it is. Wisdom allows us to discern between the two, and then gives us a capability to take appropriate actions as to what we need to do. That's how you grow says, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. I mean, that negative criticism. 
But he goes on, he says, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. You've had the negative criticism too. So, hey, just understand that. Criticism can hurt. Why? Because many times we're our worst critic, aren't we? And any criticism from someone else just adds to what is already there within ourselves, the way we think, how we cre- uh, critiqued ourselves, whether it's right or wrong. <coughs> the other person's criticism only verifies what our conscience has been telling us already. So it's tough. Some good advice from a, a grandfather that told this one man <coughs> about criticism. He said, when a mule c- kicks you, just consider the source. Many times criticism is nothing more than a mule kicking. <coughs> oh. Are mules worth worrying about? that doesn't mean that we should not listen to criticism some is valid I'm going to get this take a drink here I hate to J. Oswald Sanders in his book Spiritual Leadership states it this way what leader or preacher does not desire to be popular <coughs> with his group of believers? Certainly, there is no virtue in popularity, but popularity can be purchased at too high a price. Jesus made this crystal clear when he said, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. And he expressed the complimentary truth when he said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all things of evil against you falsely for my sake. When we start to get punched around by others with criticism, one thing one preacher shared that very wise information, he said, Just remember, When somebody's criticizing you, you know a lot more about yourself than they do. And a lot more that God has forgiven you for. A lot worse things that you've done than they know. So just thank God that they're only hitting you with what they see before you at that time. Wisdom and help, uh, wisdom will help us rise above both giving and receiving criticism. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. We have done the same thing. And then it'll help us have insight. If you'll look at verses 23 through 29, I'm not going to read them all right now, but wisdom provides us insight. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off, 
and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things. And to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I've discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. The first has to do with ourselves. He said that we cannot make ourselves wise. I am determined to be wise, but this is beyond me. Hard work and self-analysis will not make a person wise. He not only couldn't make himself wise, but he couldn't even understand himself. Man, we don't really fully understand ourselves. I mean, we think we know ourselves a lot of times, but we don't. Not like God. Have you, you know, have you ever uh, asked yourself after you've done something, why did I do that? Why in the world did I do that? Well, he says, so I turned to mind to understand, to investigate, to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I couldn't understand why I did things. Why did I do that? I only hurt that person when I said that. What he did find was the most people find in life apart from God. Bitterness and death, I find more bitter than death, the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. So first the preacher found out that true wisdom doesn't come by hard work and self-analysis. It comes only from the mind of God. But second of all, in verses 26 through 29, Solomon tells us that intimate relationships are compelling but often unsatisfying I mean here was a guy that knew it I mean he had a thousand women in his court he had plenty of sexual relationships he found nothing to satisfy the searching of his heart there he did not come you know he did come to realize that the man who fears God who understands God whose eyes are are open and whose heart is taught by the word of God will escape this he passes on his experience to show how to escape this emptiness that was in his his life he not only called himself trapped by sexual seductiveness but he says that he he was also puzzled by strange observation found in verse 28 one man <coughs> among a thousand I found but a woman among all these I have not found so he was chauvinistic pig, right? Some people have took that to mean that. That's not what he was, was it? Now what has he just been talking about? He's been talking about his relationships with women. And he's, what he's saying here is, as he went through life, he, he occasionally found loyal, trustworthy, godly, wise men who would give true, uh, you know, a true friend 
wisdom or wise information. But he never found a woman like that while pursuing sexual relations. Why? Because out of the thousand women he was involved with sexually, he never found one whom he could trust. Why not? Because his problem was that it wasn't with the women uh, as much as he, his relationship to them. He was stymied by the immediate sexual involvement. That canceled out discovering who the woman really was. If that's all a person is going for, this is why it's so, you, you see it on TV and everywhere else, what love is all about, it's all about sex. It isn't all about sex. It's, it's about a relationship between two people within the bonds of marriage. And this is what he's trying to get across. That the, uh, you know, a very important lesson to learn. That sex outside of marriage arrests a mutual process of, of discovery. You can't discover who you are or another person who they are when you're involved together in wrongful sex. There's no way. It happens all the time when it, uh, it begins to, uh, you know, even with a couple who begins to grow in the Lord. I've seen it happen. They begin to know each other, love each other, discover things that they like and dislike with each other. But then watch. All of a sudden, there's some kind of improper outside either marriage or if they're dating a couple, a Christian couple, sex enters in, premarital sex, and all of a sudden their relationship begins to go sour. A weirdness sets in. They begin to quarrel and fight. And, and often it turned out that they had given way there to, uh, to their temptations and become sexually involved with one another or outside the bond of marriage. So often this wrongful sexual relationship counsels out every attempt to discover the other side, who, the, who that person is. And the scripture warns us about premarital sex. Or marriage outside, or sex outside of marriage. In marriage, good sex will enhance the discovery process. Without marriage, without its commitment and intimacy, sex derails discovery. And this is what the preacher means in verse 28. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand. In other words, it was a relationship where they could talk about things. And build a relation, but not one upright woman. The other was just sexually oriented. Solomon had plenty of sexual relationships, but none that caused him to gain any wisdom. And his third and final gain concerning wisdom is our problem is not with God, but with ourselves. This only have I found, he says. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Because we'll not heed the wisdom of God and the word of God, we seek to circumvent what he is telling us and try to find the riches of life despite <clears throat> or apart from the rules of life that he set forth. We go about our own way. That's what happens in marriages, that happens in relationships, that happens in jobs, whatever it is. It cannot be done. God remains constant, but man still plans ways to live without him 
And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll find out that true life can never be found except where God, where God says it can be found, in a relationship with Him. That's why all relationships and marriage relationships and children uh, within the family and all that needs to be built around God. The world's definition of wisdom is vastly different from God's. Any wisdom which is not centered around God is not wisdom at all. God is willing to, uh, to give his wisdom to all that ask for it. If they're believers, are we allowing God's wisdom to take room and root in our heart? Concerning balance, is it guarding us from extremes or are we going to extremes one way or the other in our lifestyle with our wisdom regarding strength is strength keeping us stable or do we often find ourselves hanging onto the words of others and do we find ourselves weakened by the words of others and regarding insight, is wisdom clearing our minds? Or are things becoming increasingly indefinite and unsure for our lives? We're just not sure about anything. If so, then we're not allowing God's wisdom to balance us, to strengthen us, and to give us insight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.